Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. 1, 1 is where we're going to start. This morning, we, we're wrapping up our... Uh, yeah, could you bring me that, please, son? Thank you. Uh, we're wrapping up our uh, skipped, uh, skipped rock through the Old Testament, uh, getting the, the feel for what people uh, or, uh, God's people were in the Old Testament. We're ending up this morning in the writings. Uh, next week, we will start uh, with the Gospels. We'll start with Matthew, and we'll begin to we'll take a few weeks and look at what the church was in the Gospels. Uh, and then uh, Acts after that, and on and on. But this morning we are in the writings. Now, what are the writings? Well, technically the writings are uh, 12 books of the Old Testament. It's actually 11 in the Hebrew Bible, uh, in the actual Hebrew Bible. Uh, the, the writings are Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. Those are the poetry writings. Uh, the festival scrolls are Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And then there's the historical books, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and this is where the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, has one where we have two. We split Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, the uh, Hebrew Bible joins those two. And then Chronicles, uh, first and second for us, first and second Chronicles. So those, are, those are the writings. Uh, I'll also just let you know that uh, the, old, the, the Hebrew Bible ends with second Chronicles. We end with, what, uh, Malachi in the Old Testament? Did I get that right? No, Zephyr, yeah, Malachi. I got it right the first time. That's rare. Uh, we uh, end with Malachi. The, the Hebrew Bible ends with Second Chronicles, and we'll talk about that in a second when we get there. So that's what we're looking at this morning, the writings. And we're not going in that order of, of poetry and, and, and scrolls and history books. We're, we're kind of uh, changing our order this morning. But we're going to begin with Psalm 1-1, and I want us to read that first before we get into uh, the actual, the, the, the illustration of the message. You know, all preachers, we have an illustration to begin with. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 is what we're reading. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join a group of mockers. Good, good word there. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, as we move into uh, the message this morning, what I want us to think about, what I want us to, the, the image I want us to keep is this tree planted by the waters. That's, that's the, the image I want us to, to uh, focus on. We're going to look at three different aspects of what the writings covered the, the writings of the Old Testament, what they covered. But this is the image I want. And here's a, a picture of a tree planted by the waters. Um, this is, I'm not sure what kind of tree, but it's on the Monterey Peninsula in California. Now, a few weeks ago, I came back from, I think it was Houston. Uh, I was spending the night in Houston. I came back, rather than coming I-10 all the way, I went down uh, Port Arthur and then across, uh, up down the, the coast, you know, and then came up 27. And down there are a number of live oaks that I noticed. Now, I wanted to get down there this week and, and take pictures of them. I just didn't have time. But some live oaks that look very similar to this. Now, what's the reason for this? Well, this tree is planted by the water, the, the Pacific coastline in its case. And it grows where the wind is constant. 
And so instead of growing the way a tree would, straight up with its branches out, it grows at an angle. It grows this way, and the branches all lean with the wind because it really just has no option. It's leaning that way the whole, its entire life, and as it gets stronger and stronger doing that, it creates this real, you know, it's, it's architecture almost. Uh, it's something you might create. You can see in the background between the limbs in the back other trees the same way. Keep that image as we move forward. This tree knows the hardships of where it was planted. It knows what it was like to grow up in a rough part of town, okay, for, for lack of a, a better analogy. It knows what it's supposed to be doing. It has deep roots to hold it there. It's fulfilling its purpose as a tree. Whatever its tree purpose is, that's what it's doing. It's doing what it was created to do in a rough, in a tough environment. Can you imagine just what had to occur for that tree to even start growing? If the wind is that constant, that seed got blown in from somewhere. You see there's no tree right around it, so it didn't just drop from a tree and then sprout up. That tree got blown in, and, and somehow it got caught between maybe a couple of large rocks or something, or a squirrel or something, if they have squirrels there, buried it. You know, something ha Some traumatic event got it to that spot, and then when it was there, it grew, it put down roots, and it fulfilled its purpose. As we keep that image, we want to uh, put ourselves in that position as we study these writings and we see God's walk with his people through the reality of life. Because this is our, our reality, right? Now, that what we're going to look at in the writings is uh, worship, wisdom, and suffering, those three parts of, of the writings. But we experience those things, supposed to, daily. This is just a part of life. So I think when uh, the psalmist talks about a tree planted by the waters, we, we tend to think of, and I, I think that is very accurate, the image that, that we're getting from it, this tree that is, you know, the stately live oak that is, you know, in, in full, uh, full spread, perfectly round and, and, and just magnificent and majestic and gorgeous. But sometimes the tree planted by the waters is beaten and buffeted and, and forced to grow in a way that doesn't maybe look exactly the way we think it should, but yet grows, fulfills its purpose, and has its roots planted deep. That's what we're going to see here as God walks with us as we walk through the writing. So first, we're going to see God's walk in worship. Now, the, the four books that we're kind of focusing on here are Psalm, uh, Psalms, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. These are books that talk about a number of other things, but for the purposes of this morning, we're going to talk about the worship we see. And we open with Psalm 1-1. And Psalm is a hymnal. It, it's a worship book. It is what uh, the, uh, the Israelites used to, to sing, to, to, to worship at the temple and, and other places. It was their songbook. And yet, it begins with discipleship. Delight in the Lord's instruction, verse 1 says. His delight is in the Lord's instruction. He meditates on it day and night. Why would you begin a worship book with, with discipleship as this one does? Well, because I, I submit to you that uh, 
worship must begin with obedience. I would also I would go further and say worship cannot happen without there being first obedience to the one being worshipped. We 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 just it's just the way it is when we worship God. If we come to God and we say, Lord, I want to worship you, and, and he says, well, where have you been all week? What kind of worship are we going to have that morning? Now, I, I will say we can have some incredibly restorative worship if, if we've been absent during the week and we come back and we realize our disobedience, our, our sinfulness in avoiding God for the six days before Sunday, and we can have some great worship. But if that is your pattern, if it's disobedience, 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 worship, eh. no, doesn't work. And so obedience must come before worship because, right, walking with God requires obedience. Let's go back to the first message I preached when I talked about Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. What messed up their walk? Nightly, they had uh, this, this uh, evening promenade with, with God. And the time they didn't show up was because of their disobedience prior to the appointment time. Disobedience messes up our walk with God. So the psalmist says, you know what? Before you start worshiping, before you come to me and say, Lord, I want to worship you, have you been obedient to me? That's what he's asking here. But then we must ask, what is worship? Well, I've got a long list of things that worship is, and at the end of each uh, uh, descriptor, I've got the psalm specifically that focuses on that part of it. So if you're a writing person, write in a hurry uh, as we move through this. Um, and I encourage you to take notes and go back and look at these psalms later on. But worship is bowing before the king, 95.6 says. 95.6, it, it it, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. That's the, the simplest, bowing down before the king, supplicating ourselves, humility before the one who is much, much, much higher in status, uh, in status and standing than we are, bowing down before our creator. Worship is also asking for provision. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. Yes, worship is going to our God and saying, Lord, I need this. I need you, but I need this. I, I, I need this in my life right now because we understand that the, the, the God that we worship, if, if he is deserving of worship, he is strong enough and great enough and big enough, but also loving enough and caring enough and gracious enough to provide what we need. And remember, we're getting these from the Psalms, right? We're getting these from the hymnal, of the Israelites. And these are the things that the Psalms ask for. Uh, thirdly, it, worship requests forgiveness. That's why I say we can have a, a wonderful, restorative worship on Sunday morning if our six-day week has been a, one of disobedience, but we come in repentance, we come asking for forgiveness, then we can have a wonderful Sunday of worship. Just don't make that your habit, because after a while... That just becomes the way you worship, and that is not a life that's focused and following, focused on and following God. Uh, worship is receiving instruction, Psalm 19. When we come before God and we bow before him, we expect to hear from the king. An audience with the king means the king is probably going to speak to us and give us 
something that we should do. We receive instruction. Number five, praise him for his character and gifts, Psalm 8. You will never exhaust worship for the character of God because you will never get through with how wonderful his character is. Never get through all the ways he has blessed you and the way he has gifted you. Worship is, is doing that. Uh, number six, I think, live to serve him. Psalm 100, worship is living to serve God. Again, obedience is the beginning of worship. So if we're not obedient, then our worship suffers. Worship is living to serve God. Number seven, worship we see in Psalm 25 is individual and corporate. It is my responsibility to worship God by myself, alone, just me and him, at any point in time that he calls me to it or leads me to it or I feel led to it, which pretty much should be all the time. But worship is also corporate. We have a wonderful ministry uh, uh, through television. We, we have sermons online. You can listen to them as podcasts. We, we present a number of different ways for the service and the sermon to be, uh, to be seen, to be heard. But the reality is those ways pale greatly in comparison to corporate worship. They, they are a, a, a temporary measure to, uh, to, to allow us to do something when we can't do it the real way. But they're not the standard. Here, right now, among brothers and sisters in Christ is when we need to be worshiping. It is both individual and corporate. And we're not to neglect either one of those. Uh, number eight, 2 Chronicles 17 tells us that worship is, for the, for the Jews at this time, it was in their cities with Levites. See, God set it up so that they didn't have to be at the temple all the time in Jerusalem. He put churches, for lack of a better term, it wasn't synagogues at the time, but he put groups of Levites, church men, uh, their, their pastors, their, their religious leaders, in their town to help them worship when they weren't at the temple. Because God is to be worshipped everywhere. It's not just here on Sunday morning that we worship. It's in our homes. It's, yes, it's in our fishing boats. Guys, that you say, oh, I'll worship God just as good in the boat. Well, no, you don't worship him just as good, but it is, it can be a place of worship. But it's not to be, not to be instead of church. No, you didn't, you didn't hear me say that. Neither is the deer stand. That's, that's a different sermon. Uh, in their cities in worship, uh, Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 17, during special seasons. We worship him all the time, but there's a time when we focus purely, or maybe not purely, we, we, we focus on uh, certain aspects of God. We do that. We have our Christian holidays. We have Christmas. We have Easter. We have other times that we focus on particular things about God, and that's great. We are supposed to worship him then. It's a, it's a heightened awareness. It's a great opportunity to invite people to church. Uh, Christmas and Easter, both, because Christmas, you know, everybody's talking about it, everybody celebrates it, but Easter is, well, let's be honest, it's kind of when people start to feel guilty about not being in church. And it's also going to be the most blatant presentation of the gospel. So someone who's a, a CEO, you know, a Christmas and Easter only, um, they're going to come and they're going to hear that message, and maybe it connects finally for the first time. So special seasons, special opportunities are great opportunities to worship. And then lastly, worship is for everyone, not just Israel. And we see that in Psalm 67.4. God's making clear 
that yes, I'm setting you apart, yes, I'm setting you up, yes, you have the temple, yes, you have the Levites, but guys, this is not just for you. This is not an exclusive club that you get to join and that you get to pay your dues and then you get to vote and run it the way you want to. Y'all, worship is about me and it's for everybody to come and worship me, God says. Not me, Michael the pastor, but me, God, talking to us. So that's what we see worship is in the Psalms. Well, then we jump to, to Ezra and we have no specific verse here that I want to point you to, but remembering this tree planted by the water, remembering the, the image of this tree blown and buffeted by the wind, we see Ezra describing a renewal of worship after the exile. E- Ezra comes along after Israel has come out of exile in Babylon. Cyrus the Persian has come, defeated uh, Babylon, so now Cyrus says, go home. Uh, and worship, build your temple again. We'll talk that, about that again in just a minute. And Ezra shows us this renewal of worship. Interestingly enough, I'll, I'll give you, excuse me, this little tidbit. Ezra is when God doesn't cease. I won't say ceases, but we begin to see the transition of God speaking not through prophets, not through men, that's what he's been doing for a number of years, four, five hundred years. Before that, he spoke directly to the people. We see Moses and Abraham and others hearing God. From there, he began to speak to prophets. And Ezra, we see Ezra teaching from the Bible. We see God begin to speak through his scriptures more than through the prophets. We, we see what is becoming, or what will become, canonized scripture. His, his word, that then the people start taking and teaching his word. He's spoken through the people, all that, not all that he's going to, but he has said, he has given his revelation. Now they begin to teach, and that's what Ezra does, leading in the worship. Nehemiah is a contemporary of Ezra. It comes along just a little after him, but their ministries actually overlap. Nehemiah comes along and tells them about, uh, uh, the book tells us of rebuilding the city, rebuilding the wall, but also reestablishing godly worship. And Nehemiah, along with Ezra, leads worship. We see him doing that in, his, in, in the book of Nehemiah, as it's described there, him joining with Ezra as Ezra teaches, and the people listen, and we see them leading in worship. God walking with his people from the Psalms that go all the way back to David and then actually even further back to Moses, we see God walking with his people through worship. Then we see uh, through the, uh, the exile to Ezra, to Nehemiah, and then finally Chronicles. Chronicles is kind of, uh, uh, it, it, it talks about the same thing that First and Second Kings talks about, but it talks about them from a different angle. Chronicles presents a history and an empire of worship. I loved that phrase when I saw it, that an empire of worship, because we do realize, right, God had this special people, had this group of people called out, beginning with Abraham and down through the years, not for them, not for some geopolitical force in, in, the, in the known world at the time, but for worship. Chronicles chronicles that, that this was an empire created for worship, a history of worship, and where they got it wrong was when 
God took them into exile. And Hebrew scripture, as I said, closes with Chronicles. It closes with that last uh, verse of Chronicle, uh, the, the last verse of Second Chronicles. And I want to read that to you so you can hear it. It's actually Cyrus the Persian speaking. It's uh, Chronicles 36, chapter 36, and the verse is 25. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, Yahweh, he, he's using his covenant name, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Listen to the last sentence of the Hebrew Bible. Whoever among you of his people may go up, and may the Lord his God be with him. The last verse of the Hebrew Bible is a command to go to the temple. The first verse of the New Testament uh, not the first verse, the first, some of the first images we see from the temple in the New Testament is what? Jesus being greeted, being proclaimed by Simeon and Anna. Tell me, tell me that God did not know what he was doing. I will laugh in your face. Because he tells them at the end, go to the temple, my people. Go to the temple. And when they get there, mm, three, four hundred years later, but when they get there, there's Jesus. And that's what we begin with. So he's walking with them through worship, where, where worship happens in the temple. Secondly, God walks in wisdom, or God's walk in wisdom with his people. Wisdom is faithful execution of God's word in daily life. Right? We can't have worship without obedience. Well, we really can't have uh, wisdom with uh, obedience without wisdom. Understanding that we have certain things we are to do and certain things we're not to do. And let's be honest, wisdom is a gradual collection over time for us. We, it takes us a while. But that's okay. It's called sanctification. It's called God walking with his people. Proverbs, one book of wisdom, has a goal of godly character. That's what it's getting at. Uh, Proverbs 1.8 says that we are to respect God. Uh, Proverbs 3.5 says we are to trust God. We begin with those things, and then wisdom begins to come. We respect him, we understand he's in charge, but we trust him, we understand that his words are true, then we can begin to grow in wisdom. And as we grow in wisdom, we mirror God's character. Have the mind of Christ, the New Testament tells us. Fruit of the Spirit, the New Testament tells us. That is God's character. Now, I want to say this briefly, and I'm, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on it. That's why I'm going to say it briefly. But let's remember that Proverbs are not promises, okay? Sometimes we, we, we read a proverb and we say, yes, that's my promise, but it doesn't, it doesn't come true for us. Why? Well, I'll, I'll give you one example. So, uh, Proverbs uh, 24, verses 5 and 6. Those two verses say, don't answer a foolish man basically because it's just a waste of time. That's 24, or 24, 5. 25, 6, or 25, 24, 6, I'll get it right here in a second, says, answer a foolish man, or he'll think he's right, basically. Now wait, am I not supposed to answer a foolish man, or am I supposed to answer a foolish man? Now, if those are promises, if those are things we're supposed to take and just absolutely apply across the board, how are you going to apply that? Because it says in one verse, do it, and it says in the next verse, don't do it. 
or vice versa. Don't do it, but do it. How do you do it? Well, wisdom. But there's some, some fools, it says, don't answer a fool. There's some fools just not worth an answer. I mean, that's, that's really what it's saying. Don't bother. It's not going to do any good. There's some fools, you need to, you need to tell them, you, man, you are crazy. Out your mind, dumb with what you're thinking. Particularly when it comes to God, his word, those kinds of things. So when I say they're not promises, what I'm saying is you need to use wisdom. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he will, is old, he will not depart from it. Really? Because don't we all know some Christians whose, whose children definitely departed from the way they were raised? So, what's wrong? Well, these are general wisdom statements that sometimes they're great, and sometimes they work. They're not any less God's word because they are only proverbs or only wisdom because they are things that we take to heart. You don't say, well, you know, I don't know how he's going to turn out, so I'm not going to raise him right. No, we don't do that. We, we take the wisdom, we raise them the way they're supposed to be raised, and we pray and we put them in God's hands, but we also know that child is going to be able to make a choice at some point. And we pray and we do what we can, but if we don't raise them the right way, really what chance do they have? So we raise them and we put them in God's hands. So I wanted briefly to, to cover that just because we, we use these verses wrong sometimes. We throw them at people when, they, when they're going through trouble, but then we could go and probably find a verse that just directly contradicts the one we said. Why? Because it is much more uh, uh, situationally driven than sometimes we give Proverbs credit for. Ruth. Next place of wisdom shows three characters who embody wisdom. Ruth converts to Yahweh. She's loyal to Naomi. She shows industry before Boaz. Y'all, that is wisdom. It is always wisdom to convert to Yahweh. It is always wisdom to trust the one true God. It, loyalty is always wise. Industry, being industrious, is always wise. We see Boaz, who loves his neighbors, who is faithful to his covenant, particularly the covenant of kinsman redeemer, which, go look that up. I don't want to spend time on that this morning. But faithful to do what the law says, the covenant says. That's Boaz. Then we see Naomi. We certainly see wisdom in her counseling of Ruth to do certain things. When, when something happens, okay, now Ruth, go do this. Okay, this happened, Naomi, now what? Well, go do this. This is godly wisdom. This is God's walk with his people in wisdom. And then we see at the end of Ruth, we see that uh, kind of the, the, the twist on the ending, we see that this is the Davidic line, that, that Boaz is, if I remember correctly, David's great-great-grandfather, if I got the right, the right number of greats. Because in wisdom, they are obedient. And in obedience, God is able to use them to bring about, in this case, the Messiah. God's walk with his people in wisdom. And then finally, we see God's walk in suffering. And let me begin this section by saying God's people will suffer. If you're watching a preacher on TV and he tells you that God doesn't want you to suffer, that you'll never suffer, that your suffering is a lack of faith, turn him off. Because that is not what is going to happen. If you don't believe me, just read Matthew 5, first 10, 12 verses. And see the guarantee of suffering. 
read first two or three chapters of Revelation and see the suffering that the churches went through. Read anything Paul wrote and let him talk about his shipwrecks and his beatings and that kind of thing. And, 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 and I'll ask you, did Paul not have enough faith? Jesus was crucified. Did Jesus not have enough faith? So don't ever let them tell you God's people will not suffer. But I will promise you this. In your suffering, God will never leave you alone. Never. There is nothing you can go through that God says, you know, that's, sorry, y'all, that is just too much for me. You kind of own your own on this one. When you get through it, call me, let me know how it went. We'll pick up where we left off. That's not the God that we serve. And we see that in Job in particular. Job is not an Israelite. Job lived about the time of Abraham, maybe even a little before. So we're talking about some old story here. And Job went through suffering even though he was blameless. Now, he had a few little issues at the end about, well, God, you know, questioning God. How can you do that, God? And, and, and God kind of says, who are you again? What? You are Job, right? Job. I, where were you when I created all this stuff? And Job kind of says, okay, whatever you do is good. But he had done nothing to deserve the calamity that was his life. He lost everything but his wife. And based on the reading, his wife was no treasure. Um, you know, curse God and die, Job. I mean, that's just not something you want to hear from the lips of your spouse. But that's what she told him. His friends basically left him, betrayed him. Job, you had to do something. <laughs> it just doesn't happen to people unless they've done something to really make God mad. So, you know, no, Job was blameless and he was committed. No matter what happens, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return, blessed be the name of the Lord. No matter what happens between when I was born and when I die, it's all about God. That's what we see as God walks with his people through suffering. And we see that Job was teachable. Like I said, at the end of the story, and he is going, God, why did you do this? And God says, Job, where were you? And Job says, you got me, you're right, blessed be your name. God's walk with his people through suffering. Lamentations. Lamentations is in the midst of this deserved discipline. Lamentations was written during the exile. Maybe by Jeremiah, maybe put together by Jeremiah, but during the exile, when everything was gone, all hope was lost as far as the people knew. It was over. The covenant was done. We are no longer God's special people and we see throughout lamentations, throughout this suffering, that God is gracious and forgiving. Finally, we see Daniel. Daniel, who ends up in exile through no fault of his own. He was too young at the time to be a reason for the exile. And he's hauled off to, uh, to Babylon at a pretty young age. Grew old in Babylon. Very old, probably 80s, 90s kind of thing. I mean, he was an old dude by the time he died. Sorry for anybody in their 80s and 90s that I just called an old dude. Um, but uh, I was getting on up there, y'all. I mean, and I'm, I'm glad you're there. Wisdom comes with age, right? That's, there you go. That's what you got to believe. And Daniel grow old there, and throughout he is faithful in suffering. His friends are faithful. Don't, uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to the statue or you'll burn. All right, we burn because we're not bowing down. You know you're going to burn. Where's your God? Well, whether he saves us or not, we are not bowing down. In our suffering, we will be faithful. Daniel, you can't pray. You can't pray three times a day like you're used to. You, you can't make a public display of it. Nope, you, nope, nope, nope. You do it. You're, you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. We made the law. Yep, y'all decide what you're going to do, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to be faithful. And he was thrown in. He did not suffer. But throughout Daniel, especially in the middle part, we hear, we hear the promise. In the midst of the suffering, Daniel, the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man that, that they understood was this messianic figure. They knew something great's happening. But Daniel, Daniel, he's going to be greater than you can imagine. Because when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, he's going to throw himself back into that. He's going to call himself the Son of Man. The most common descriptor that Jesus used for himself was Son of Man going back to Daniel and Ezekiel, using that. Those times in the midst of suffering when God said, my greatest promise is still coming. I have not forgotten my people. I have not forgotten you, Israel. I have not forgotten you, Christian. I have not forgotten you, Daniel or Michael, or John, or Jim, or Sarah, or Susan, or whatever names might be here this morning. Your suffering is not the end. Your suffering is your opportunity to see the greater promise ahead. The Old Testament is replete with God saying, this is not the purpose. This is not the end. Jesus is. The Messiah is. God walked with his people who came in obedient worship. God walks with his people in wisdom and understanding and making decisions and, and making mistakes like Job and thinking how and they're thinking about God and him correcting and teaching. God walks with them through that wisdom. God walks with them through their suffering over and over and over. Let me tell you this morning that God will not leave you in your suffering. But I also need to tell you that there is a way out of your suffering. We suffer because of sin. Pure and simple. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. I, I just love how almost every Sunday so far, uh, Sunday school, and, it, and it's, not, it's not just here. It, it happened in Nixon too. Sunday school fed my sermon. Uh, it was an opportunity to, for me to sit and, and listen and interact and, and, and God to speak to me before I got up to speak to y'all on his behalf. And he talked, we talked about sin this morning. That is God's opportunity to correct you, to, to, for you to say, uh, you know what, I, my sin is, is a, I mean, my, rather my suffering is a direct result of my sin. But now, I'm not going to make the promise to you this morning that if I get my sin right, the suffering goes away because that's not the way life in a fallen world, in, 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 in the flesh, works. But I will tell you that to suffer with Jesus is a thousand, a million times, uh, a Brazilian times better than suffering without him. Yes, I said Brazilian on purpose, if y'all are wondering what it is. 
It is so much better. Because I have hope. I know that whatever I go through, whatever I suffer right now, though he slay me, I get to be with him. There is nothing this world can throw at me when I have Jesus that will ever, ever be as bad as the glory that I will one day experience in his presence. So this morning, I want to tell you that, that your sin, your, your suffering, is a problem brought on by your sin. But we can take care of the sin problem, and then your suffering has purpose. Your suffering has hope. We, I, I had the privilege of, of taking part in a funeral this week. And, and I get to stand before people and tell them at every funeral, I always present the gospel at a funeral and a wedding. So if I ever do one of those for you, it's going to happen. But I get to tell them that we, from Paul's lips, we don't have to suffer as someone without hope. We don't have to mourn as someone without hope. Because we can have our hope in Jesus Christ. We can be a planted tree. Y'all, we are a seed blown in the wind. We are a, a sapling moved uh, uh, from place to place, um, uh, susceptible to anything that comes along. But we are a planted tree when we trust Christ. And we may lean over. Our branches may be all crazy against the, the, the wind that's been blowing hard. And we may look crooked and we may look distraught, and we may look torn up, and we may look like there's just no way we can handle this. There's no way we're going to get through this, but yet we know, if we have trusted Christ, that our roots are solid. And there is no wind that can blow us down. There's no force that can take it away. We are rooted in Christ, and you can do that this morning. There's a recognition you must make, though. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Nobody's perfect. None of you. No matter how highly you think of yourself, you're not perfect. Every one of us has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin, broken God's law. Not made mistakes, not whoopsies, but you have broken God's law. And therefore, you are God's enemy. That's sin. But, while those wages of sin is death, while our deserved punishment is eternal separation from God, the fact is that there's a gift. There's a way out. There is a way to plant our roots deep, and that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we can have eternal life through him. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8 says, God proved this. In our, in our deepest rebellion, when we were furthest away from God, Christ died for us. I believe Christ died for everybody. I believe Christ died for those people who will never turn to him. Imagine that. Let that sink in. For those who will never trust him as Savior, he still died for them. You, this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, He died for you. The depth of your sin, the depth of your depravity, is no deterrent to God's saving ability through Jesus Christ. He died for you. And then Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. That means no matter the depths of your depravity, no matter the, the, the despicable nature of your sin, when you repent and turn to him and call on his name, even you can be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. That is, that is what leads to worship, right? The right relationship with God is what leads us to worship. Obedience says I can worship. Obedience says I need to trust Christ as my Savior. Wisdom says I can't do this on my own. I cannot fix the sin problem. Wisdom says I need something greater, and that something greater is actually a someone, Jesus Christ. Suffering says I don't want to go through this. But I certainly don't want to go through this without hope. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you hope. I will give you rest. This morning, what's your decision for Jesus? Maybe, maybe you've got some other issues. Maybe you've got some obedience that leads to worship issues. Maybe you've got some wisdom issues because you ain't got the wisdom, right? I mean, you're, you're just making some bad decisions right now. Maybe you've got some suffering that you think, why? Why? Well, I, I sure can't give you the why. I can give you the who. But no matter the suffering, God can take you through it. But this morning, you may need to come and give those things to him at this altar. We've got padded, wonderful padded kneeling benches for you to pray. It's open for you. Maybe you want me to pray with you. That's great. I will do whatever you'd like. Maybe, though, you need to come and give your heart to Jesus. Donald comes, and we have a, a time of response. What are you going to do? You need to do business with God this morning. Every one of you. There's not a single one of you here this morning who does not need to come to God with something. So what are you going to do? I'll be down here in front to pray with you. I'll be happy to do it. But now's your time. Let's stand, and let's sing. Let's do business with God this morning.